Welcome to episode 192, Sensory Differences Impact on Behavior and When to Refer Out, featuring Robin Abbott, Licensed Occupational Therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. This episode is proudly sponsored by Best Notes Electronic Health Record, software build for practices poised for growth and compliance. Visit bestnotes.com slash clearly clinical for a free demonstration. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am looking forward to this conversation with Robin Abbott. She is an occupational therapist, and her specialization is sensory differences and what we as clinicians can be doing to support folks who have sensory differences and how to even conceptualize them, what interventions we can use. Thank you so much for joining us, Robin. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into this topic, which is very rich, I mean, I know I have so many clients that have sensory processing differences, so I'm going to grab my popcorn (laughs) while we're talking because I'm sure I'm going to learn so much. Why don't you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and how you came to zoom in on this particular aspect of occupational therapy? uh, So um, I've been an occupational therapist for a very long time, uh, since since before the millennium. Uh, And uh, I worked in acute care for for quite some time, and I did get into pediatrics um, until after I had my own kids. Um, I essentially was bored in my current, in the job that I had and went uh, to the, the nearest pediatric place and said, I have the only experience I have with kids are the two that I gave birth to <laughs> and had the most wonderful boss who was like, that's okay. We are in such a shortage for occupational therapists. We'll take you, we'll figure it out. Um, and I, I uh, went to a training on sensory processing differences and, and just like all careers, you start to realize, you know, oh, I don't know enough about this. And you kind of collect like you're catching fireflies, uh, the things that you need to know. Um, uh, but, but I was getting a little frustrated because um, sensory integration therapy and, and sensory modification is out there kind of in the broad world for parents to access already. Uh, people, there'll be articles in parenting magazines about what to do if your child's not sleeping or, you know, if your child is sensitive to noise. Or, and I thought, I'm not really providing a service that a, a knowledgeable parent can't figure out on their own because the parents are the experts on their children. They are the ones that know. So to come in as an expert, um, when I have known this child almost none uh, and, and try to tell a parent the best thing to do, I really felt kind of fraudy. Uh, and um, I went to a training in a technique called therapeutic listening, which is an auditory-based um, therapy um, done with headphones uh, and started monkeying around with it a little bit. I mean, it's that's really because it's not something I learned in school. I thought, well, we'll try this and we'll try that. And the results that I was getting was just, it was something that I knew I couldn't do, uh, I couldn't refer a parent to like, oh, you could figure this out on your own. I'm the expert in it and I will help guide you through this procedure. And when we're, we get to the end, your child will have gains. I couldn't always predict what gains. Um, and sometimes it was a delightful surprise where a child made gains and things. And I was like, yes, that, who knew that was going to happen? And other times a child didn't progress as far as I want, but every child I've ever seen made progress. And I couldn't say that before instituting um, auditory and then eventually vestibular 
therapy into um, into my milieu. And through those two types of therapy, I was able to springboard onto the other things like children with eating problems and um, children with, with academic issues and start to address those higher level things based on what we were filling in in their developmental, um, the developmental gaps that they had until age five or seven or nine or whenever I met them. There were things in their developmental history that needed to be patched in first. And these were the patches. And then we could go, we could continue from there. As you're talking about this, what I'm thinking of first is you are the first occupational therapist that we have had on our podcast. And yeah, (laughs) and but even that I think says a lot because there's so much overlap between, we'll say mainstream therapy, psychotherapy, Mm -hmm. and occupational therapy. And I'm realizing, can you start by just doing a primer for our listeners about what occupational therapy is? And it looks very different in different uh, different scenarios. So somebody will say, I know what OT is, but they saw it in psychiatric adult care. And it looks very yes. different in pediatrics. So uh, the overarching umbrella for occupational therapy is therapy involving things that occupy our time. That's where the occupation comes from, is therapy using the things that occupy our time and therapy to address the things that occupy our time. So occupational therapists are programmed to do. We, we expect our people, our clients, our, ther- our, our participants to do therapy. Now, for a child, their occupations are play, getting along with their family, learning, uh, learning in school, making new friends. So really, our domain with pediatrics is everything. I mean, they're learning to get dressed. They're learning to, you know, take care of themselves. They're learning how to be polite. And all those things could fall under our domain, which is honestly one of the challenges in pediatrics. If everything can be therapy, well, what do you, I mean, what do you narrow it down to? So, um, uh, so that is OT and peds, whereas in traditional, um, traditional medical settings, it tends to be divided upper body and lower bodies. The OTs get the upper bodies and the PTs get the lower bodies. And so it looks different in different environments. But if we think of it as therapy involving the things that occupy our time, that is, that's the essence of occupational therapy. Sure. Great and succinct way of saying that. <laughs> it's really hard to do. It took me 20 years of practice. <laughs> so moving into the doing, we're specifically talking today about working with children. So individuals early in life, this idea of sensory processing for our listeners, we've had versions of this conversation where we've mentioned it before featuring, for example, Dr. Shiro Torquato building upon that, really focusing more, especially through your lens as an occupational therapist, compared to talking with psychologists or therapists as we've done previously. Where should we start today? <laughs> so um, it's funny that I think one of the, the roadblocks in my profession to the type of therapy that I do is that it does start out very passively. Um, if you think about sensory processing, the first step in sensory processing is to orient to a stimulus. Um, if you if if you don't have that orienting response, like something happened in my environment, oh, I need to pay attention. No learning can take place. Nothing about 
uh, nothing of, of the consequences of that uh, stimulation can take place. So no learning takes place, right? Part of the beginning of auditory and vestibular treatment is kind of uh, aiding the orienting response, helping a child learn when to orient and when to habituate, when to, to reject stimulus because it's not helpful and when to orient to stimulus because it's it, there's something in the environment that needs attention. Um, and it's that's really, I mean, if you can control a child's attention, they can learn. Interesting. So you're saying that foundational to this is viewing the stimulation as a first element and then learning being the goal. Right. Because that's that's really the goal for all of us even if it's even if it's you know an adult the knowledge that we already have you're still learning i mean we just talked about it with with a move you're learning where things are and and adapting it's learning and adaptation maybe we could use those two phrases uh as synonyms because you're adapting to your environment it's a learning process um and that's really a healthy person is one who can adapt to their environment with the best and and easiest way as you're talking, I can hear even how your language, your use of language is so different than standard run-of-the-mill psychotherapist and the things that you're focusing on. So for you, when you are conceptualizing sensory processing differences through the lens of an occupational therapist, which is totally different than the lens of a therapist, like we, there's some shared overlap, but the way we would describe that would be very different. Can you describe that through the lens of an OT? Oh, okay, got it. So I, I didn't realize we were speaking a different language to some extent. So um, sensory processing differences. Let's um, maybe it would be helpful if I could if I could guess at what a psychotherapist might be dealing with. Like if if we or could we be talking about a an adult? Is that well, would that in be this typical? Case, let's talk about a child. Let's okay. assume pediatric. Okay. But okay. I'm thinking, so th thinking of myself as a licensed marriage and family therapist, mm -hmm. at least for me in my training in my state and my licensure type, I'm not qualified to be doing psychiatric or psychological testing. Okay. Um, there are some diagnoses I may be able to give, some that I may not be comfortable with. So for example, in different places, whether therapists feel comfortable diagnosing autism spectrum disorder, for example. But so where I am in my domain, I don't do any kind of psych testing, for example. Okay. So for me, when it comes to understanding or even just observing or wondering about sensory differences, it's coming from potentially a parent report or what I'm observing right. of a child sitting down and how they're moving against the couch mm. or what they're doing to self-soothe. And your it's, concern would be the child's behavior's impact on the family. Exactly. Um, right. and, or not even on the family, but on like their relational uh, impact just on their world at large. Right. So does this child have difficulty in any domain that's contributing to their acting out in class, for example? Okay, so let's let's talk about maybe this this family dynamic and and like the parent report that you're getting. You know, yes. um, you know he he tends to keep it together in school, and then he comes home and it's complete meltdown city. And uh, you know, you're you're trying to figure out okay, how can we get this family to the end of the day in a harmonious way? Um, so you ask questions. You know, it it, it, it does the child respond. Uh, how does the child respond to chaos at home? How does the child respond when they don't get their way? How are they sleeping okay? You're trying to piece all that together. Um, depending on the 
the holes that you find, I guess, the things that you would you would kind of peg uh, as as being issues. Let's say the child doesn't sleep very much. Um, uh, you know, tell me about that. And the parent says, well, he's running around until midnight, basically until he hits the wall and passes out. And then he's up again at 530 before anybody in the house is. As, as an occupational therapist, that is already ticking in my head because to me, that's a regulation disorder. That is that child um, needs movement in order to feel okay. So if you think about sleep as a function of being able to completely relax, this child is incapable of completely relaxing. Um, (laughs) It's going to be so hard to break that down. Uh, Depending on the other symptoms that I might see, I would say, okay, why can't this child relax? If I'm seeing a lot of movement, like they're in your office and, you know, they're running all over the place and you're, and they're, let's say for, for sake of argument, they're six or seven and, and should be able to sit still, right? A three, four year old, go crazy. Uh, But six or seven still running around and unable to really engage with you. um, That tells me that they're not comfortable being still. And that could be the threat that's keeping them from relaxing enough to go to sleep at eight o'clock when it's normal. They're just not tired enough to be completely still. They have to hit that wall. To me, that's a vestibular difference. The vestibular system in their inner ear is telling them, look, if we sit still, we get kind of lost. We don't really know where our boundaries are. We don't really know what our space is. But if we keep our weight through our legs and and use our muscles and, and feel this physical input of movement, then we feel okay. We are oriented to our space. Everything's okay. It's it's almost what I what I tell parents try to try to get them to to lock into this idea is you know when you're um, you're pulling into a parking spot and that um, that you know you're coming to a stop but you didn't realize the guy next to you was backing out and he starts to back out as you come to a stop and you're like holy crap and you slam your foot on the brake because you you aren't sure you're stopping. Those little disconnects between what you're feeling and what you're seeing or what you're experiencing um, and what is going on in the world, when they don't connect all the time, it can give you like an extra layer of anxiety. So in order to control that extra layer of anxiety, a child is going to be on the move to make themselves feel okay, feel grounded. And you could see where that would get in the way of sleep. Like sleep is not going to happen if you can't just sit there and chill out. Because honestly, we literally fall asleep. Falling is scary. You have to fall asleep. So I know the wheels are turning and it's just a totally different way of thinking about it, isn't it? (laughs) It really is. Uh, And it's, we kind of landed in this perfect example of the way that your mind thinks from your training and specialization to the way that mine does. And it's really interesting because my brain goes straight to like, well, let's talk about sleep hygiene and like, what are they feeding the child? And like, they're just so many factors. All that those years ago, this is where I started. And I was like, yeah, but you can read a, read a magazine or talk to a different professional. What do I add as an OT that they can't get, you know, a lot of times I'll see a child who's already getting, you know, ABA and psychotherapy and they're getting family therapy and what's my role here? That is kind of my role is to say physiologically, what is happening inside this child? I'm excited for where this conversation is going to go because it's such a different way of framing. So for those of us who are not as familiar with the sensory processing world, Tell me about vestibular processing, auditory processing. Do the quick 101 to kind of break down those terms. And then let's dive into 
how you see these things and the work you do and kind of where it overlaps with psychotherapy. Great. Okay. So we can start all the way back at the beginning in the womb. <laughs> so developmental, um, developmentally, the first two senses to develop in the womb at 26 weeks are your auditory sense and your vestibular sense. Those are the first fully myelinated, fully developed um, sensory systems. So even after, um, even after the eyes are fully um, physically developed, they, they, they lack the ability to focus. Um, you know, babies are born and they can't control the focus and the direction of their eyes. Um, the sensors in the skin, yes, a, a child can feel things through their skin, but as they grow and change shape, that that homunculus man that we used to see in in physiology class that you know the different where those sensory systems wind up in their brain change so it's the first system the only two systems and they're really the same system the auditory system and the vestibular system are both housed in the inner ear it's the same endolymph that goes through the vestibular semicircular canals and through the cochlea which is the organ that you hear with so really we're talking about the same system it's just that the auditory system senses very fine movement of airway and the vestibular system senses very large movement of physical movement and rotation. So they both sense movement. It's just a question of the quality of the movement. Um, that said, those two sensory systems are the foundation for everything that comes after. We can't learn something by download. We have to build learning on top of what our body already knows. So I come out yay, it's my birthday. And I, I can feel movement and I can hear sound. And how do you startle a baby? You drop them from a height or you make a really loud noise because those two systems have those reflexes that are meant to uh, be built upon. That movement helps us, um, let's say, for example, I'm, you know, I'm a baby, I'm learning to pick my head up, mom holds me up on her shoulder, and I'm engaging all the muscles of my neck. Well, how do I know what muscles to engage? Oh, my vestibular system is telling me my head is moving forward, my head is, okay, now I'm learning to tie that into neck muscle development. I'm learning to rotate my head. Um, ocular motor-wise, when we hear a sound, from a certain distance, that's the initial indication of moving our eyes through our, through space. So we, we start to layer these muscular movements of our eyes and our neck and our body on top of this understanding of sound and where it's coming from and motion and how it affects our body. So because those two things are so elemental, um, they can really be thrown off by um, chronic ear infections, chronic allergies, because that affects the fluid in your middle ear, um, premature birth, because you may have had that 26 weeks for your um, vestibular system and your auditory system to develop, but there's a lot that happens in utero that um, allows a, a child to play with those sensations before they have to use that knowledge in the real world. Um, breach presentation can be an issue uh, because, you know, if, if the system is designed that it develops with a head down orientation and you, you know, spent the developmental period in a different position, that, that can, I mean, that's a big reach. I'm not real sure about that one, but, but studies have shown that children with chronic otitis media wind up with auditory processing differences. Um, children with um, profound hearing loss have a higher incidence of ADHD. So we know that there are developmental sequelae. It's just a difficult system to predict, okay, where are those holes that we know might be there in their auditory and vestibular development going to show up developmentally, going to show up functionally later on? We don't, we don't always know. 
as you're describing, it's this whole element of explaining a contributing factor for, say, ADHD, that speaking as a therapist, I am used to, and I should say psychotherapist, I'm used to language around, say, sensory seeking or avoiding, and you are much more able to describe those in terms that don't even occur to me as a psychotherapist. (laughs) And so I'm just sitting here listening going, oh, that makes so much sense. And sometimes you can take that vocabulary, and OTs use that vocabulary too. I just don't, but OTs, and, and and I... You're going to get me on a soapbox that's going to tick off all the other OTs, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, But that sensory seeking can kind of be put in a box with uh, vestibularly hyposensitive. That child isn't feeling um, vestibular movement adequately, so they have to create their own movement. So they're seeking sensory inputs, if that makes sense. So you can take, yeah, you can take that... um, that, that vocabulary that you already have and put it into these boxes. I just find these boxes are more physiologically useful. They can describe what's going on inside the child's body instead of what the world is doing for the child. And that to me helps me figure out, okay, what can we do to, to fix what's inside the child so that their insides feel better and can better match the outside world? Um, yeah, like sensory avoiders, to me, that usually, I mean, and I would ask a lot more questions. I have a whole list of things I want to know about a child, but a sensory avoider to me is probably auditorily hypersensitive. They tend to be overwhelmed by noise. Um, and so avoid, and, and also it could also be a, a movement issue. You know, if I barely feel like I've got my vestibular system working, if I barely feel like I have my balance, I'm not going to want to interact with other people in a physical way, because I, I'm in control of me, but don't be throwing extra stuff at me. So I can see sensory avoiding and sensory seeking in these in these frames of reference, but it just, it's a different vocabulary. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm grateful for someone like you who has a different vocabulary bridging the gap in what we have in our world. Before you and I started recording, talking about how often I think in psychotherapy, we have our way of seeing things, one lens, and that there are these resources available to us like occupational therapy that, as you and I were talking about, may be available. You know, or is there access? That was a difficulty I had. So I, I work a lot with folks who are neurodivergent. I have absolutely referred out to OT before. And then having difficulty finding the right therapist, finding somebody with availability, then conversation about finances and scheduling, like it it becomes a thing. Uh, But so to kind of bridge the gap for us in the mental health treatment world to understand, like, here's where we can have some understanding and influence. And where do we refer out? Right. And even just sometimes if I can explain to a parent, this is what's going on inside your child's brain physiologically. Their their behavior is doing something for them that they really need. It can change the dynamic of the conversation because I've wanted to wring my kid's neck and I'm pretty sure it's because they were being a pain in the butt, (laughs) not because of anything that they needed, which isn't true. But if you know, and a lot of times I'll explain the physiological genesis of a child's behavior, and I'll see a light bulb go on for a parent, like, oh, oh, his dad does that, or <laughs> I, I used to do that when I was a kid. I totally forgot that I used to, you know, suck my thumb or whatever the 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 weird thing that's bugging them, it, it, you know, from their child is the same. They're trying to fill in the same gaps that they were as a child. Interesting. Okay. 
So we're looking at differences in processing. And for those of us who don't have as much experience zooming in the way that you do as an occupational therapist, how can impaired auditory processing affect the behavior and communication in children? Got it. Uh, I love the, the term you use, zooming in, because it is. I, I can, and, and I forget that you have to pull back a little bit. Um, so, auditory dysfunction looks a lot of different ways. And, um, it, you know, if we go back to uh, that development in the womb, and, and we'll, we'll start there. Uh, one of the key elements that kind of happens um, after that auditory system is engaged is, um, you know, you can imagine being in utero and you hear because that's the mother's heartbeat and you hear external noises, but they're coming through the amniotic fluid. Well, as soon as the baby in the womb runs out of space, their head may start to make contact with mom's rib cage or her pelvis or her spine. And bone conducted sound will come through from mom's vocal cords, right? So all of a sudden they're hearing, hello, baby, you know, it, and they, a, a child will start to get this, oh, auditory foreground versus auditory background. And they'll have two or three months of being able to practice like, oh, that's a human voice. I might want to tune into that. To, that's just, woof, woof, that's just mom's heartbeat. Do, 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 do. So if you, let's say, um, let's say a child experiences a premature birth, didn't have that experience of foreground background, and now they're out in the world and sensation, auditory sensation just kind of comes in, but it doesn't have that auditory uh, foreground background element. So the child is constantly just not hearing what's going on in their environment. And it, behaviorally, it is, you know, I call his name 30 times and he doesn't ever hear me. Whatever, you know, he's watching TV. It may not be that he's watching TV. It's that he can't delineate your voice from general background noise. Well, and then, you know, the next step in that chain is, okay, he has trouble with, you know, um, with uh, academic tasks because he can't hone in on the teacher's voice long enough to eliminate it from background noise. Um, once he can, is he hearing the difference between ah and eh? Probably not. So when it comes to spelling hat, do, can he hear the ah in hat or can he hear het? So the, we don't know where those gaps are going to show up. But for a child with a premature birth, there is a very high likelihood that auditory foreground background is an issue and that has, a, has auditory processing sequelae. You want me to give you another example? I can. <laughs> My brain is is processing this. Yes. Because um, I don't know if I've ever sat down and talked with an occupational therapist before about this nitty gritty. <laughs> you know, I've read psych reports. And so through the lens of a psychologist that's saying, here are some deficits, let's say. Right. And then maybe recommendations around that, but not this um, consideration of the nitty gritty Right. That I, I, I'm having that light bulb moment that you were talking about a parent of like, wow, okay, so this is making so much more sense. It doesn't, it's not as out there now. It's something much more concrete. Right. And, and, and you can, you can see where it would be frustrating for a child to have somebody trying to work on attention with them by saying, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. When the, the physiological tools that they might, you, you assume that they have aren't really there. So we're asking them to do something that's kind of impossible because they didn't have that physiological practice of attending over and over again. So when I when I 
work with a child with auditory therapy, and there are a whole bunch of different auditory therapy programs out there, it helps fill in those gaps so that they get to practice foreground background um, using the tools that I use in the clinic. And then you start to see like, oh, now they're getting somebody's mom calls up the stairs. Timmy, get your shoes on. And Timmy comes down with his shoes on and mom goes, well, that's never happened before. <laughs> so that's when I start to know, okay, I'm on the right track. What we're doing is, is affecting Timmy's behavior in a positive way. Speaking to our listener base, so primarily mental health professionals, you probably have a lot of experience and a lot of insight on when therapists need to like lean in and go, okay, tell me more about that, to really start nailing this down. Where are those moments that you see, like, where is it that, that we're potentially missing the mark? <laughs> So it's funny because yeah, for the first few years that I did this, I really had to refine my evaluation procedure because parents would just have no idea what I do. And that's totally fair. So they would share information that they thought was important, but not information that I needed to put in my database about their child um, and not information. Sometimes like the best example is they wouldn't share anything about a child's sleep schedule with me because they didn't think I was going to, you're not in my house at bedtime. How can you possibly help me with sleep? But the questions, um, the questions I ask are, are, helpful to me um, in regards to those behaviors because it helps me figure out like for example um, if it comes to sleeping and we've already talked about how a child's movement can can prevent them from relaxing enough to get to sleep um, it's even important to me to know so when Timmy goes to bed do you need to be in the bed with him for him to fall asleep or do you just tuck him in and say night night Timmy and eventually he falls asleep or when Timmy wakes up in the middle of the night does he sneak into your room and lay down on the floor or does he climb into bed with you and park himself under your arm and the reason that it's important to me is because if Timmy isn't going to sleep without someone in the room and he has to be in physical contact with them he's cheating he's using their vestibular system as a substitute for his own so that he can say okay you know what I may not be able to feel like I know where I am, but mom's got me and I can relax. Or as long as mom's body against my side doesn't move, then I know I'm not moving and I can relax. And let's say something wakes Timmy up and he's got to go back to sleep. Does he need to be back in physical contact? Because to me, that's a that's a vestibular issue. Now, if Timmy wakes up in the middle of the night and he just wants to come into mom's room and lays down on the floor, that to me is an auditory issue. I just need mom's sound system to, to my, her early warning system to tell me if anything happens that, you know, I may not, I may not understand what I'm hearing, you know, and, it, and he may not know it's a dog barking next door or the air conditioner kicking on. He just knows a sound wakes him up and he's not sure if he's safe. He needs to go be with the safe person who's, whose monitoring system works better than his. So that's why when I, when I kind of go through the behavioral checklist with what's happening with a child, things, um, the different things can kind of help me figure out what is going on inside that child's head. The other one that I ask, I ask about sleeping in very, very much detail. I ask about, uh, I ask about eating in, in a lot of detail because that tells me a lot. And I want to know what the child's reaction was when things do not go their way. Do they have uh, oppositional behaviors or do they tend to retreat? So those things all tell me how they process things. Interesting. And in this consideration about referring out, 
therapists, we have our toolbox. So like I said, focuses on things like sleep hygiene or boundaries. Like I can easily see a therapist saying, well, then we take that child back into their bed and you're going, well, wait, hold on. There's a function of this behavior. Let's try to understand what the function is. And so then, then does the OT with a specialization like yours kind of come in to that moment and say, okay, well, yes, we can talk about sleep hygiene. We can talk about boundaries and and all of those things. And Right now, the child is borrowing mom's correct, system. Let's correct say. me if I'm wrong, but I feel like this is still in a psychotherapist's wheelhouse. I feel like it doesn't fall outside of your licensure to say, what, what could possibly be going on with this child that, that makes them need this behavior? And then have some tools in your toolbox. Like, for example, if I think it's an auditory thing, yeah, we're going to do auditory therapy because I can do it, but your therapist can learn to do it too. Um so I, but one of my suggestions is like, you know, just have, just have a, um, a CD playing quietly in the background of classical music or something calming. And one of the things that that may do for a child where I feel like they have an auditory processing issue is it gives them a sound anchor within a darkened environment. So they're like, okay, as long as that nice, quiet music is always coming from right over there, then I know I'm still in my bed and I'm still okay. So that's one thing that you might not already know about that you could add. If, if you know it's, it's a child who needs that physical contact, try a weighted blanket, something that can give that child that physical feedback of like, okay, I have, you know, I know where I am more now than if I was just floating out in space the way I normally am, and I can put myself back to sleep. So those boundaries are super important. And I think, you know, a child working their way towards independence cannot be overstated. It is the goal. So before asking for that independence, maybe just think, how can I set this kid up for success? If the goal is to stay in their room all night long, how can we set them up for success? Yes, I think it is absolutely in our wheelhouse to think about those kind of interventions. Speaking only for myself, it's a matter of making sure I'm checking various boxes. So for example, have I referred out for uh, a physical? Could this child who has a tendency to be a very picky eater have nutrient deficiencies that are contributing to the insomnia or to the restlessness? But so then it, for me, it's, it's like, and what about the sensory piece? Like what's going yeah. on here of making sure that I'm checking that box in my head right. too, of how am I exploring this? And are there any interventions here that I feel skilled enough? And th- so there's always those little things that you didn't know you didn't know. Yeah. Um, one of them for me, you know, in regards to eating is um, zinc deficiency. Zinc is the mineral that helps your taste buds to fire. So kids could feel like they're eating cardboard because their taste buds just aren't firing. But adding zinc to their diet can make a big difference in their desire to eat. Um, so yeah, th- you don't know what you don't know. Uh, so I just wanted to throw that one out there. But I feel like even if... Um, you only have so much time with your clients. Like your job is already filling up that hour that you have with your client, the thing that you're there to do. So you feel like you do want to be able to refer out and know, you know what? I know this child might have this need. I need to make sure it's met. Um, My opinion, and I can only speak to the occupational therapy side of it, is... um, and somewhat to the speech therapy side, because there's a lot of overlap in these things. So you might, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list some things to look for, if that's okay, when you're looking to refer out. Um, it's, uh, uh, but just be in, bear in mind, 
it might not be an OT that you're looking for. It might be a physical therapist. It might be a speech language pathologist. And some of the things that you that an OT can do, you can hire a paraprofessional to do within your clinic. That's another idea that I don't think it's visited a lot. Um, you don't have to be a licensed occupational therapist to do auditory um, training, to do um, a headphone music-based therapy, or to do even a, a play-based vestibular therapy. You know, you could hire a play therapist. I don't know if there's a different terminology for that in um, in, in Oregon. In North Carolina, they were community-based resource specialists or something. They were play therapists. Um, I'm sure every um, every state has their version. Um, however, so if you if you if you feel like you're not finding um, a therapist that meets what you're the criteria that you that you've set, um, you can create that person with the right training. That said, um, if I was if I was Google searching <laughs> the, uh, the the therapists in my area, um, and, and I have had to do this because we moved around a lot. And when I was leaving, I wanted to refer children to therapies, therapists that I thought was were, were going to be similar to me. Um, so I would look for a therapist that was um, certified in some kind of auditory processing program. Therapeutic listening is one. Um, the listening program from um, Advanced Brain Technologies is one. Um, there are CDs. Well, I say CDs because I'm old as dirt. But <laughs> there, are, there are auditory programs that are commercially available that use the same technologies. And they can be a place to start for your parent to just say, look, we know your ch your child is exhibiting symptoms of of um, an auditory hypersensitivity. They cover their ears in public bathrooms. They they are out of control in cafeterias. Uh, they can't handle birthday parties. Those things lead me to believe that they could benefit from. Um, there's a there's a program called Ease Electronic Auditory Stimulation Effect, and it's a, just a, a box set of of albums that you can take a child through with no. I, I mean, it's music. They can take it off if it's creating a problem, but it has to be delivered through really high quality headphones. And there are, there are reasons for that. Um, so, you know, some basic training is really important, um, but, but license to do this? No, you know, I think psychotherapists are completely licensed to do this. Play therapists are licensed. It falls within the, the scope of their practice. Um, Physic, uh, vestibular therapy. If you see, you know, you're, you're Google searching and you're looking for keywords on, on therapist websites. Uh, the astronaut training program is my favorite thing in the history of things. Um, it's a vestibular training program that is, it's very cookbooky. It's a cookbook approach, but it might be the recipe your kid needs. Um, if you see a, an occupational therapy clinic and they have pictures of the clinic or even a physical therapy clinic and there are swings and climbing walls, there has to be a way for a child to move big because children, especially before the age of nine, are big movers. They're supposed to be big movers. They're not supposed to be fine motor movers. But if your child, like if your parent has said, you know, they go to the occupational therapist and they go to this little cubicle sized room and they sit down and they do um, hand writing with uh, a better not bad mouth one particular program but they do they do handwriting practice or cutting practice okay they can get that in school that's what school is for what is your occupational therapist doing to improve those skills so those are the those are the tick marks that I look for when I'm when I'm referring out when I have to and what I hope other people might have the knowledge to ask about you know it, parents need to know, like, if your child is going to therapy, there are questions you can ask, and the therapist should not be offended by being asked and should have a, a ready response for why they choose to do what they do.
I think, I mean, I think just that is a great point of like finding the right fit between, I was going to say client and clinician, but it's really family and clinician if we're talking about serving children. You have talked about auditory differences early in life and how they can manifest. You've touched on it a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about vestibular developmental differences and some of the things that clinicians should be looking out for to kind of tip their hat in the direction of vestibular sensory processing? So the vestibular system, obviously, the the most important thing it does, it, it tells us we're moving and it tells us we're still. Um, and that is all works great if we expect to be moving when we're moving and we expect to be still when we're still. And if those two... Um, if the expectation doesn't match the vestibular system's reality, that's when we have an issue. And the, the biggest example that everybody's experienced is motion sickness. If the world is moving and you're still, like when you're in a car and your butt is telling you you're very still, but the world going by the window tells you you're moving, that disconnect creates a vagal response that makes you sick. Um, the cure is to get where the world looks stable and look out at the horizon, right? Same thing with motion, with, the, with being seasick. That is kind of the most obvious example, but the little glitches all day long, um, especially for kids who have a hyposensitive vestibular system, is that need for constant movement. They're going to want feedback through other parts of their body, um, not just getting up and moving around, even though that's a big one. Kids, you know, you, we talked about eating uh, issues. Maybe the kid can't sit still long enough to take in a meal. so. You know, you, you need to look at that. Um, so uh, they're, you know, constantly getting in trouble for being moving during class, getting up from their seat during class. Okay, they have to get up from their seat to feel normalized. So that's one kind of thing that happens when the vestibular system isn't giving you enough information. Um, another one is that hypersensitivity. What what I think the term that people are still using is tactile defensiveness, um, where they're, they're hypersensitive to tags in their clothes and seams on their socks. So if this, the vestibular system isn't giving you that, it's all good, you're okay, you can relax, you can ground, you're grounded, you can take it down a notch. Your systems will always be a little hyped up. They'll always be a little on edge and on guard because your body's looking for additional feedback um, to tell you about your environment, to tell you you're safe, to tell you you are, uh, that everything's okay. So the habituation that should take place when you get used to sitting on a chair doesn't take place because your butt can still feel all of the this it's still looking for information you know once your foot has been in that shoe for five minutes you shouldn't really notice the shoe anymore but your body is still looking for information so that habituation in your brain just never quite shuts off and that's a that also happens auditorily it also happens um shoot gustatorily olfactory. I mean, we shut our nose off all the time. Like, oh, what is that smell? And two minutes later, you can't smell it. Those efferent nerves are sending those signals. The problem in a child's brain is, you know, if it fires together, it wires together. So if they're always firing those efferent and afferent nerves from their foot to tell them that they're okay, shutting it off is, is the system that's broken down a little bit. So tactile defensiveness, to me, if we take it all the way back to the beginning of it, it's, it's a vestibular issue. If we address the vestibular issue so that they feel solid when they're sitting still, when they're able to relax, um, they can use that habituation system so much more readily to shut off sensations that shouldn't be distracting them. So to translate that as I heard it, it's a matter of 
potentially rebalancing the child's vestibular system relative to the environment and also potentially making changes in the environment to have it meet the child's needs. Yes. Yeah. So like before you take away what that child is using to get through the day, um, tuning, what I would do as an occupational therapist is to tune up their vestibular system. Um, and we can talk about what that looks like as well. But if I know when I'm doing my thing, if it's effective, I will see signs in a child's behavior. A couple of examples. Um, I had a kiddo who, um, toe walker, toe walking is wicked hard. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult behavior to, to address. Um, but, he, so, but that gives you an idea. He was constantly on the move. I mean, 15 seconds of sitting still was not going to happen for this kid. Um, and he constantly tripped over things. I mean, he didn't register his environment at all because he just needed to be on the move. Well, after um, after a bit of therapy, you know, we were working really hard on, on his vestibular system. Um, mom comes to me and says, you know, he can go from, from his, um, his classroom to the music room now without somebody having to hold his hand. He just gets in line with the other kids that tells me he's more oriented to his body and the direction he's supposed to be moving in, that he can get his vestibular system to function enough to, um, to be able to, to understand what direction to move in. Because that sense of where your center is, that's what your vestibular system gives you. I am here. This is in front. This is behind. This is right. This is left. But if I don't know where I am, the you are here dot, then I really don't know what direction yeah to move my eyes and my butt. Yes, you just you just move in a direction until you ba- exactly, which is what I believe toe walking is a, is a big um is a big behavior related to. Well, you know what? I can't stand still, but I can fall in every direction and catch myself. So if I'm constantly falling, then I'm good. I know where I am. So, but I wouldn't have wanted to take away his paraprofessional that held his hand and took him from class to class until I had seen his ability to to start to do it on his own in some capacity. So I'm thinking of a therapist listening to this, let's say is in private practice, um, which tends to be by definition kind of more siloed. We may not have the same opportunities to have like a treatment team meeting as if we were working part of a I was um, in the clinic too, yeah. So, so let's say we have a private practice psychotherapist who um, is working with a child and family and let's just say the child is six years old and has so much difficulty at mealtime keeping their butts in a chair. And this has become a real issue of contention in the family uh, that the child maybe is falling on the growth curve because they're also not eating very much. So, so yes, the psychotherapist is probably thinking of, do I need to refer to a doctor to see if there's something else that could be contributing to, you know, which is still a very legitimate concern. Yeah. So let's say we're ruling those things out. When you hear those kind of stories, where does your brain as an OT go to like, here's some practical interventions that could be done outside of occupational therapy that a therapist, the psychotherapist is like, have you tried this? It's like, I mean, is it, is it one of those weighted, uh, it, uh, a weighted, I love a weighted lap pad. Uh, I love a, uh, a piece of TheraBand between the between the legs of the chair so that the child can kick into it. You know, they tuck their feet behind the TheraBand and they can kick into it. Um, I love um, I love timing a meal. Uh, I, I can give you a personal story. Um, my my own daughter had eating difficulties. Now she is 
actually vestibularly hyposensitive or hypersensitive. So she preferred not to move, but it kind of um, it kind of disconnected her from the world somewhat. Like she would sit down and just kind of unplug. She can still unplug really good, and she's 22. But <laughs> but um, one of the interventions that I that I just kind of figured out by paying attention because this is at the very beginning of my of my um, journey as a pediatric OT. We bought a trampoline and you know she she had fun it was fun it was a big family thing yay it got to the point within a few months where she's like oh you're getting dinner ready mom i'm going to take myself out to the trampoline she knew that that time on the trampoline would better orient herself to her body engage her muscles so that when we sat down to dinner she could engage and be checked in for the meal and feel things better so that when she put a piece of food in her mouth because she was a big gagger and a and a vomiter um when she put a piece of food in her mouth, her whole body felt more engaged. And she's like, oh, okay, I can tell where that is in my mouth. I can feel its texture. Um, she also was a little low on zinc. She's a very educational child for me. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but so things like that, those are, those are very typical child behaviors. But timed correctly can give the child the tools they need to get through that 15 minutes of dinner. Because dinner is only 15 minutes, really. It doesn't take any longer than that to get a good bit of food into a child. But if we can give them the tools they need to sit down for that 15 minutes, for sure. Listening as both a parent and as a clinician, I'm appreciating that there are these things that parents are absolutely doing without awareness of why it's working. We just know that it is. Because I told, like, I had the conversation yesterday with somebody of like, well, yeah, she needs to get her wiggles out. And then we can sit down and we can have dinner. And so much of it is just normal, like, <laughs> old-fashioned common sense. Like, of course a child can't sit still when they, they didn't get recess today. Don't get me started on recess, man. And the fact that my child could come home from school be like, we didn't get recess today. That should never, ever happen. Ever. But that's, that's a different soapbox and I won't even step on it. <laughs> but I, I think what's helpful in this conversation for me, one of, one of the things, I mean, so many, but one of the things is just simply being given the opportunity to engage with the information differently, to consider its function in the child's sensory needs. And then where do I fit in as a clinician to help facilitate more optimal opportunities for this child. Right. And it's not a parent, you know, a parent saying, I'm kind of already figuring out what makes my child feel yeah. good is is a huge tool. I mean, because even the child themselves, it, it, my favorite example of this is Temple Grandin. She was phenomenal in explaining what it's like to be a person with autism. Her verbal skills are so dynamic and but she she could tell you what it feels like and she could tell you why she does how how her behaviors make her feel i do this because afterwards i feel x but she couldn't tell you physiologically what was different about her that made that the case and really in reading her her books thinking in pictures was just an eye-opening experience for me because as i read it i'm going well that's because you have an auditory processing problem oh that's because you didn't you know you you weren't you weren't having a vestibular uh, you're having a vestibular disconnect there so i i kind of like oh i could tell you why this is different for you so when a child or an adult tells me this is the thing that seems to help, 
that's when my knowledge meets up with their knowledge. And I'd say, okay, this is why it helps. And maybe we can continue more in that vein. Right. You can try to operationalize. Yeah, exactly. So for practitioners who are listening to this conversation today, perhaps like me going, I need to learn more about this. um, Where do we get better, more in-depth training about the impact of vestibular and auditory processing on someone's, we'll say, sensory existence in the world? So it depends on how in the weeds you want to get, (laughs) (laughs) because you could get pretty weedy. Um, My book, I think, is a pretty good overview. Um, It's very specific to um, auditory and vestibular processing. There are other great books um, that touch on auditory and vestibular processing. Um, Raising a Sensory Smart Child was one of my favorite ones. Um, And um, the Sensory... Sensational Kids by Lucy Jane Miller. Um, those are great overall sensory processing, and they 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 have a great introduction to what vestibular processing really is and what auditory processing really is. Um, Jean Ayers, the mother of sensory processing um, and sensory integration therapy, um, her um, her book. See, I told you I was not going to remember the title. Sensory integration. Can't remember the subtitle. I'll get it to you. Uh, <laughs> um, is, is a wonderful introduction. If you want to get more into um, what therapy should look like or the neurology behind what's going on, um, for what therapy should look like, my book, um, which I feel like is, um, it's designed for parents. So it's a little bit more friendly to like, these are the things to look for in a therapist. Um, there's also a wonderful book by Nina Kraus called Of Sound Mind. And she goes into the neuroanatomy of what our brains actually do with sound. And it's, that's a really eye-opening book if you, if you, if you want to get super geeky, as I do. <laughs> and for our listeners, Robin's book is Sound Advice, How to Help Your Child uh, with SPD, Autism, and ADHD from the Inside Out. Um, I think your point, though, is a good one about like how far out in the weeds do we want to get. And I'm sure that there are people listening going, okay, I have some understanding of sensory processing. And if I lean in this particular direction, I could learn additional ways to explain what I'm seeing and what's happening, and then ways to help address it. And so there are programs out there. Um, I am trained, uh, there's a, a program called Vita, uh, Therapeutic Listening from Vital Links. And that is, it's a continuing education program. They have online ones. Um, and that is, even if you're, even if the person doing the research doesn't want to use their form of auditory therapy, taking their class called Listening with the Whole Body is a wonderful summary of what our auditory system actually does for us. And they have another class called um, Habituation from the Core is what it used to be called in the dark ages. I'm not sure what it's called now, but that one is really um, uh, about... Um, the vestibular system and how to attune the vestibular system and why you would make certain decisions in therapy as far as movement goes. Um, uh, their, their program astronaut training is just, that's the cookbook. That's the, like, here's the book, here's the equipment, follow these steps. And, and it, it really, it can't be done wrong. <laughs> so if, if, if a parent or a therapist is willing to try it, then, then you might as well try it. And if, if you're not getting the results that you want, um, 
or you're not getting, you're getting negative results. I can't think of a time I've ever really gotten negative results other than maybe a vestibularly hypersensitive child who couldn't tolerate the movement. And then you just back off. Okay, we do fewer movements, we build up. Um, that's really a, a powerful tool for me. Um, Advanced Brain Technologies has a, a program called the Listening Program, and I know they have a couple different programs. One of them even has a bone conduction element where there's a speaker in the in the headphones, so that if you've got a child with hearing loss or um, you know that they are having trouble tolerating the sound of their own voice, because our own voices come through bone conducted sound. So those children who are, um, I've always kind of questioned selective mutism. Like, is it selective mutism or can they not tolerate the sound of their own voice? Um, that bone conducted sound could help address something like that. Um, and some, there's the Tomatis method, uh, which is, um, that's a clinic-based therapy. But if there's a, a practitioner in your area that practices the Tomatis method, it is electronically modulated sound, just like all these other programs, but there's a, there's a microphone component. So there is an auditory feedback from a person's voice um, in that particular program. Um, yeah, that's, my advice is, you know, spend the 300 bucks and go to a vital links training, go to a, a advanced brain technologies training. And if it looks like something, I know when I took my first listening with the whole body class, I was just making notes like crazy. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is what's happening with little Jimmy. This is what's happening with Susan. And I just, that's all was in the, the, the pair, the margins of my notes is just kids names. Cause I was finally understanding what might be going on with them. Part of your, I think message that I've heard from our conversation today is inviting mental health professionals into the weeds and better training on these and saying it's okay like you can do this if you if you get this training you can do these therapy these therapies um and i'm guessing i'm thinking about when do we refer out and i'm guessing the answer is when we know it's beyond our depth when we've identified that there's something there we have our limited toolbox as mental health professionals we've talked about the boundaries we've talked about like trying to understand the function of the behavior but we can't really we do not have that nutcracker <laughs> like we cannot crack that nut in what we and, do and again That's going back the to the, the function of time you only have so much time yeah. and you're like you know i don't want to take the any time out of what we're doing here in the right. in the clinic together to do this that i know your child needs especially if you're doing a family-based therapy and you're like okay your child is one dimension of your family that we can't make the entire session about them um auditory-based therapy is home-based so there is that once a therapist is trained in it, they can check in and they can use the child's behavior as an indicator of what the child might need auditorily, but they're gonna send home um, the headphones and the albums and say, this is your homework. This, the child has to listen on a prescribed schedule to this, to this album and, and we'll see what we get and that will dictate where we go from here. Um, the astronaut training program, again, if you have a paraprofessional who's trained in it, they can train parents to do it at home. Um, and so those are those are a ways to kind of skirt um, having to have a toolbox the size of New Hampshire because you, you're like, okay, there are so many things that could help this child. I can't be an expert in all of them. Um, it, I I still feel like there are times um, when referring to a ther an occupational therapist or a speech therapist because a lot of times there's a communication deficit um, is also a good idea because. Uh, making taking that next leap, like okay, we've addressed the auditory function that we know was was the child was having difficulty with, but 
uh, and I can give a couple of really great examples of this, They're, the child it themselves doesn't believe they can make the leap. Um, one example that comes to mind is um, I love, there's, a, there's an oral motor program that I really like that has a great component of practicing eating. So for those children that, you know, you know they're functioning better, you can see their movement is more fluid and they're responding to people better and days are smoother for the family and school is easier. And you're like, what is going on with this child still not eating well? They need practice. They need a structure for attempting things that they initially would just like. You put peas on their plate, like, don't like peas, mom. And you're like, yeah, that was the old you. Let's talk about the new you. <laughs> I feel like that component still needs to be there. And sometimes a another therapist can bridge that gap or another therapist, an occupational therapist can provide that foundational vestibular and auditory ne necessity. But then a psychotherapist is the one who says, okay, I have all of these methods for attempting these things. This has been such an interesting conversation, and it certainly opened up a world for me just as a listener um, in, in what you've presented. Robin, for our listeners that want to learn more particularly about you, so your book, again, is Sound Advice. Uh, and what's the best way to get in touch with you to learn more about your work? I mean, you are so skilled in this and are, you, you are the weeds. <laughs> right, right. Sorry about that. I, I, I have trouble backing out. Um, so yeah, no, my, my, uh, my website is booksoundadvice.com all, you know, all together booksoundadvice.com. And there is a contact me link on there. Um, I'm on Instagram under Robin underscore right as in W R I T E. Um, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, if you contact me through the website, read the book. If you if you uh, if you feel like um, I would love it if there was a database out there of practitioners that knew how to do these things, maybe that'll happen someday. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great? I mean, I, I'm already thinking how helpful that would be just for me as a practitioner in private practice. Robin, thank you so much for joining us. I think it is so helpful to hear from other specializations to create an environment where we really are being multidisciplinary and remembering these other ways of thinking about these things as ways to support our clients and patients. Again, for our listeners, this is Robin Abbott that's joined us, occupational therapist. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for a great opportunity. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.